0: Do you ever wish that the communication in your relationship were a little bit better? Well, there are lots of ways to improve your communication skills. However, not all of those ways are actually going to help you in your relationship. That's because many of the conventional ways that we're taught to improve our communication could actually create more disconnect with our partner when what we're trying to do is build connection and build intimacy, even when we're talking about challenging things. So I put together a free guide for you. It's called my top three relationship communication secrets. And these are three things that are easy to put into practice, but will have an enormous impact on your ability to stay connected with your partner while you talk about anything, the sweet things or the challenging things. To get the guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate, and that's R-E-L-A-T-E, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, and I will send you a link where you can download the free guide. It's three simple things that will have an enormous impact on the communication in your relationship. All right. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. When you're looking at what's going on in your relationship or what's going on within yourself... It can be easy to focus on just the, the outside things, the behaviors that you do, the things that your partner does or doesn't do. And, and to take things at face value. However, there are these unconscious drives that motivate us. Sometimes those drives are helping us out in our lives and sometimes those drives are detrimental. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how our unconscious influences what we do, what we do in our life, what we do in relationship, what we do in love, what we do in sex. And we're also going to discover how to bring your intention and your awareness and your will to bear on how you are developing and how you are growing so that you can have maybe less of the things that are destructive and more of the things that are constructive. I'm talking about shadow, and shadow is a word that gets often thrown around, but we're going to let one of the world's experts on shadow talk to you about how to how to see shadow in a way that actually sheds some light on the topic. His name is Dr. Keith Witt, and he was here on the show back in episode 13, which seems like oh so long ago. It was about a year ago from this conversation. And I'm really excited to have Keith back to talk about how shadow works From his perspective, from the integral perspective. And the, the subtitle of his new book, Shadow Light is Illuminations at the Edge of Darkness. And I can tell you that the book does a lot to help you feel empowered so that you're not like at the mercy of your unconscious drives so that instead you can focus your attention on them and actually have them be a force for good. We're going to. I'm sure have a wide-ranging and full conversation. And if you are interested in downloading the detailed show guide, you can do that at neilsatin.com slash shadow. Or you can simply text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I will send you a link where you can download this show guide as well as all of the other Relationship Alive show guides. So that's enough from me. I'm so excited to dive into the topic of shadow with Keith Witt. Thank you so much for joining us today, Keith, on Relationship Alive.
1: It's great to be with you again, Leo.
0: Let's start by how you define shadow. And i have it's funny, like just in the past week, I've had a couple emails from listeners who have been talking about the influence of shadow or exploring the dark, the darker side. And, and so I think people have like a lot of different ideas about what we mean when we're talking about shadow. So let's start there and clear that up. And what are we talking about?
1: The way that I define shadow is everything that influences us that we're not consciously aware of. Uh, This is different from earlier uh, definitions from Freud's definition of the libidinous cauldron of drives and aggression and sexual stuff. And and the Jungian idea of um, material that came into awareness and then was repressed, um, some of it destructive, some of it um, uh, uh, transcendent, uh, where the archetypes reside and so on. And somewhat different from what the neuroscientists consider the adaptive unconscious. Um, Shadow is everything that that influences us that we're not aware of. And then we have our conscious awareness that that monitors um, uh, the unconscious material that's that's constantly coming up. Um, Our nervous systems are always reacting to internal and external cues. And in that reaction, in a tenth of a second, our nervous systems do information processing, and they send up stories and emotions and impulses and ideas that our conscious self gets a little bit later, a second to a second and a half later. And then that becomes working memory, which lasts six or ten seconds, and that's how we navigate ourselves through the day.
0: Wow. So just, uh, you know, one to 10 seconds at a time.
1: One to 10 seconds at a time. In fact, there is a book uh, written called The Present Moment. I can't remember the author right now who basically said he defined the present moment as as happening in 10 second increments. Uh, and in those 10 second increments, was a third of a second, 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 a third of a second. A third of a second. Um, though he didn't really talk about the interface between conscious and unconscious. Now, our nervous systems are not are not just taking in inputs. They're taking in inputs and they're determining whether we're safe or we're unsafe. Like you and I feel safe right now. We're socially engaged. And so you and I are connecting in a coherent and harmonious fashion. And about 40 to 60% of our contact, even without seeing each other, is nonverbal and unconscious to unconscious. It's shadow to shadow, and then the content is on top of that. So if our nervous systems say that we're safe, they tend to make us socially engaged. They tend to make us more in the moment. Um, they tend to make us uh, do more positive things. Um, we tend to have more constructive material come up. If our nervous systems read in any way that we're unsafe, that we're threatened. Um, then we'll have defensive reactions and they'll send up destructive uh, impulses and thoughts and um, emotions to drive us to self-protective actions. And so this 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 constructive shadow and destructive shadow is always coming up, always coming up. And then our conscious awareness uh, either notices or doesn't notice. And if we notice the conscious uh, positive, the constructive shadow, we can surrender to it. And if we notice the destructive shadow, we can go deeper into it to see where the thread is and where the work needs to happen and where the yearning is. And when we do this, we actually, there's a feedback loop that goes back into our unconscious and our unconscious grows. And all change work, all psychotherapy, all spiritual work, basically, when it works, grows the shadow self, grows the unconscious itself. Um, We can learn a new routine in a minute or two. Uh, For instance, we can learn to say, pay attention to our breath. So we can focus on paying attention to breath going in and out of our body. And then we can pay attention with uh, acceptance and caring intent of what sensation we're having as we're paying attention to breath going in and out. And so I'm doing that right now and I'm encouraging you to do it and everybody else to do it. Okay, we just learned a new routine that uh, fosters awareness. Of breath and sensation. Um, now to have that be a reflexive habit of awareness, we probably have to practice that a thousand times. And then when we do, we don't have to pay attention to focus on being aware of breath and sensation. We're just always aware of breath and sensation. And this is what happens when we bring our attention to the interface between conscious and unconscious, between our conscious awareness and our shadow selves. We begin to develop new perceptual organs. Um, And these expand our awareness. They expand our consciousness and they grow our shadow.
0: So, so many questions coming up for me already. Um, I think the first maybe is if things are happening in our unconscious, so by definition, we're not conscious of them. So how do we bring them into our awareness for for starters? Uh Uh-huh. And I mean, so many people, you can, they, they'll even say like, well, I don't know why I did it. Or, or they'll even say, well, I just, I had this impulse and I couldn't, I couldn't not do that thing. Or, um, so it just seems tricky. How, how could someone identify like, oh, that's the interface of my unconscious and conscious processes happening right there in front of me.
1: So to answer your question, um, anytime you ask yourself a question your unconscious is going to give you an answer okay so say you had that second bowl of ice cream okay yeah i feel sick why did i do that well when you ask yourself why you did it an answer will come and the answer will be whatever the answer is because i wanted it because you know screw somebody who doesn't want me to have a second bowl of ice cream something in other words that that the the, the interface is a fluid alive interface. all we have to do is invite um shadow material and it'll come all we have to do is examine it and we go deeper into it uh, and in this way our conscious self can direct all kinds of things it can can direct the development of our unconscious it can direct our creativity um it can direct um uh um, our our uh, relationships. Um, in that sense, the, our conscious self is the the is like you're you know you're behind a you're in a wagon, right? And you have like eighteen horses in front of you, which is your unconscious and all your drives. And your conscious self is the person at the reins, going, "Okay, let me see, <laughs> <laughs> got, got to organize all this stuff, and I got to choose a direction. And if I don't, they're going to choose it for me." Um, and, uh, and if I let one of them dominate, then that one's going to choose it. And, and I think this, this comes from an understanding of where consciousness came from originally. You know, um, first of all, it was just physics that controlled everything until life emerged. And then all of a sudden, there was prehension. There was decisions. Amoebas make decisions about where they're going to go. Uh, um, it's not random okay there's a there's an added level of cognition that c- that came with life, and then we go all the way up until we get to mammals where basically everyone was living in a dream you know all the mammals were living in you know the unconscious shadow was guiding and still does guide li- guides life at a particular point. the penny dropped and self awareness came where we could reflect back on this process and feed it back into this process and what that did is accelerated. Uh, evolution by orders of magnitude. And then when we came into intersubjectivity with other people through language and so on, once again, it accelerated intersubjectivity by orders of magnitude. Um, Evolutionary um, uh, scientists say that when people, for instance, start living in cities, physical evolution, you know, the evolutions of our bodies and our nervous systems, you know, our genetic evolution increased by 10,000 percent by 100 times. What was that? Well, there was a lot of physical stuff going on. There were new foods and there was new diseases and so on. But also, there was so much more inner subjectivity, so much more variety. And out of that came uh, not just evolution of consciousness in those groups, physical evolution arose also.
0: So I'm hearing this shift that's possible for us, which is about shifting from those horses' kind of pulling us willy-nilly to a place where more and more we're able to consciously evolve. And that brings up another question for me, which is, how do you know what's what's a constructive way to evolve versus a way that might ultimately be destructive?
1: Okay. Uh, You know, my last book, integral mindfulness from clueless to dialed in dealt extensively with this. And, and, it's, a, and it's a big question, um, particularly because we grow through different worldviews. We, and we occupy different worldviews every day. We, ocup, we go grow through egocentric to, to conformist, to ethnocentric to rational, to pluralistic, perhaps to integral. And we have moments in all of those worldviews. What feels right and wrong can shift in those worldviews. Shadow material is a little different coming from those different worldviews. But we happen to live in an age where the knowledge of the world is doubling every two years. And so at any particular point when, there's a, 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 when it's not obvious to us what's more healthy and what's, what's uh, more unhealthy, there's a voluminous uh, amount of social research and wisdom um, that can help guide us. And uh, in Shadow Light, uh, when I went from one chapter to the other, um, those, the, that wisdom guides us in understanding what is constructive and destructive. For instance, uh, the parents of my generation thought that it was healthy to spank their children. They thought that if a child acted badly, that hitting them was a good idea. Um, and so the, they did that. Now, people were stressed. Parents used to say things like, This hurts me more than it hurts you, and not really think what they were saying. Um, you know, if it really does hurt you more than it hurts me, then why are we doing it? <laughs> I mean, what's my motivation here? And so social research looked into the effectiveness of striking children and found that indeed striking children is not good for children or for parents. Um, that there's other forms of boundary setting for children that are way more pro-development. And so those are now widely understood and taught and the culture has progressed into generally people understand that striking children isn't a good way to teach them. Mm-hmm. Now, what created that social research and people beginning to say, if I have an impulse to violence of any sort, you know, violence is, is attacking myself or attacking you psychologically or emotionally. And this is one of the reasons I have a whole chapter on violence. Always be suspicious of a violent impulse. Um, there's almost certainly a way of doing whatever you're wanting to do that does not involve violence and that does involve compassion. And now we're beginning to see universal values come through. Um, there are categorical imperatives and having more compassionate understanding is categorically better than not having compassionate understanding. In general, violent, nonviolent, um, uh, nonviolent solutions are enormously um, preferable to violent solutions, both emotionally and psychologically. Um, uh, If if I have an impulse to attack myself or to attack you, probably that impulse has not been processed adequately by me because whatever I'm trying to accomplish can probably be accomplished better without the attack. Um, And this holds through, through every worldview. If I'm being egocentric, um, I can get my egocentric needs met without attacking me or attacking you, or I can do it by attacking me or attacking you. And you know, um, it's healthier to do it without the attack. And this is true for conformist, rational, pluralistic, and integral also. Um, so there's there are these there are these standards that uh, uh, apply. And also, if we're in doubt, we can you know look to what the data has shown us. What the, and what the data shows us is possible. Um, For instance, a lot of spiritual seekers feel inadequate and feel like bad spiritual seekers because they can always imagine themselves more enlightened than they are at that moment. And they're in a dynamic that they absorbed, that they developed in childhood, that they're not aware of of, if I'm not as good as I can imagine myself to be, I'm not very good. Mm. You do not succeed your way out of that dynamic, you have to grow your way out of that dynamic. And the only way you grow your way out of that dynamic is to, to, to examine how come I'm never feeling like I'm doing, doing it well enough and I'm always practicing it. Huh. Let me go deeper into that. And then I have this standard of I'm not, if I'm not as good as I can imagine myself to be. But, of course, since I have a human consciousness, I can always imagine myself better than I am. And so I have a, I have a primitive motivational system that needs to change. So let me develop a habit a new habit of cultivating a sense of gratitude for the progress that I've made to this moment. And I'll practice that 10 times a day. And as I practice that, I'll become more satisfied with myself as a seeker, always always wanting to move forward, but feeling a sense of satisfaction with my my work rather than a sense of dissatisfaction. And you can apply this to relationship, you can apply this to sex, you can apply this to anything. And this is I'm using this one because this is a very common one for seekers um, and a necessary one to examine and change um, on the path to unity.
0: Yeah. And since we're talking about relationships here on this podcast, uh, maybe you could step back for a moment and offer like what do you see as the big picture for how someone in relationship or even a couple together if they're able hopefully to have these kinds of conversations what's what's the journey look like for them of how to marshal their conscious awareness to fostering healthy unconscious growth and leading them toward greater unity better sex et cetera. Et cetera? what does that look like from a from a high level perspective and then maybe we'll dive into particular aspects of that
1: So the global view of this is understanding how we're programmed programmed to bond. So we're programmed, of course, to be vigilant, to find others that we're attracted to, to be attracted to them, to be drawn to them, to affiliate with them, to develop attractions, distracting attractions, romantic infatuations, to create love affairs, um, to progress through love affairs into intimate bonding, uh, perhaps six to 18 months, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. In intimate bonding, we're, we're programmed to seek family. Um, in family, we're, we're programmed to nurture children and to uh, protect the family unit. These are all biological imperatives. These are all genetic uh, legacies of our evolutionary past. Um, but let's add consciousness to this. So So human beings take all the drives. And they turn them into art. Uh, we take the, the drive to put two sticks together and we turn it into a jet airplane. We take the drive to put the blueberry next to the red berry and we create the Taj Mahal. Um, we turn the, take the drives and turn them into art. And so our drives to affiliate, we also turn them into the art of intimacy. Well, the art of intimacy means that self-aware, conscious people can engage in relationships that have endless stages of development, perhaps a hundred, perhaps more. I haven't seen an end to them. And in these stages, if you continue to go into deeper intimacy, it's very demanding, but every level involves a deeper connection, connectedness, expanding eroticism, and more personal growth. Now, how does that happen with couples? Well, first of all, they have to make people have a responsibility in maintaining themselves. If I'm allowing myself to fall to pieces physically or psychologically or professionally or in some fashion, very hard to maintain a relationship. Secondly, um, I need to have a certain kind of commitment to authenticity and transparency and development and receiving influence. You and I were talking about this before the 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 podcast. Um, If one partner is unable to receive influence or unwilling to receive influence, it stalls the development of the relationship, and the other partner will grow grow into places where there'll be conflict. Um, And so if you have those capacities, those commitments, uh, increasing authenticity um, and openness and transparency, if you have a growth mindset, we want to continue to grow as individuals as a couple, if you're able to give and receive influence – Well, in the inner subjective container of the relationship now, we have something that's larger than the sum of the two parts. We now have a relationship that's organized for people who are most intimate and most dialed into each other to be constantly giving each other verbal and nonverbal feedback about what's better and what's worse. Now, this is balanced against our natural tendencies to have relational entropy, to have relationships deteriorate, to have habituation take place. You and I were talking about this around sex. If we're unaware of those tendencies, those habituation tendencies that are, again, genetically wired, um, you know, we're wired to be able to to be monogamous but also to cheat on each other. And that's why – because our genes want lots of expression. So when we reach the deeper levels of intimacy, we can't cheat on each other and have those deeper levels of intimacy. They're they're too demanding. And so now, you know, monogamy becomes um, a a necessary uh, component uh, uh, a deeper and more trusting, uh, and a more expanding love affair between two people, or a deeper uh, spiritual intimacy between two people. And so, in the midst of that, they we give each and we see feedback, and our shadow stuff comes up. Our destructive shadow comes up with each other. And when my destructive shadow comes up with you, and we're an intersubjective dance, you're going to feel it and feel injured by it, and it'll be reflected back to me in your injury. Um, and you'll get defensive and your defensive reaction will be reflected back to me via mirror neurons and other intersubjective energies that, that some of them um, we have yet to measure. Now, what this will create is, is an accelerated conflict until one of us becomes aware of the process and does something different. And in the midst of that, that's consciousness intruding and saying, hmm, I've, I feel destructive shadow kind of hijacking at this moment and I don't want to do that.
0: So um, what would that look like? As an example, like somewhat your, your typical, here's destructive shadow entering the picture.
1: Sure. Uh, a couple um, uh, begins to talk about parenting their 11-year-old son. And uh, the wife says, I think we should find him a therapist. Um, the husband says, I don't want my son to be dependent upon a therapist. Um, uh, uh, people, uh, people get too dependent. I don't want him to, to have an, a victim identity and she gets angry. She says, wait a minute, he, I think he would really benefit. I think it would be good for him. You know, Therapy really helps people grow. And he goes, well, I don't want him to feel like he's a victim. I want him to be able to, to overcome issues. And she goes, you're not being very understanding, and I, don't, I think that you're neglecting our son's emotional needs. And he goes, how dare you say it? I, see, <laughs> what we have is an escalating conflict. You right? mm-hmm. one of these people is receiving influence from each other. And so that escalating conflict will go to wherever this couple goes with escalating conflict. They might be mean to each other. They might withdraw in the the frosty silence. Um, They might put it aside and wait for time to pass and then connect with each other. All the things that couples try to do to get back to love because everybody wants to. Um, But if they don't resolve this issue, if they don't make some progress with this, if they don't repair – You know, and repair is we need to feel understood. We need to make a little bit of progress. And then we need to feel warm with each other on the other side. If that doesn't happen, their relationship is degraded by this. And it's degraded by these shadow forces causing this escalating conflict. So so say this couple is in treatment with me. And so I turn to the guy and I say, so you have a fear that your son will identify as a victim. And um, become uh, uh, less powerful or less less independent and autonomous as a result of therapy. He says, "Yeah, I have sure a fear of that." I go, "Well, if, if he's in therapy that does that, you should fire that therapist because therapy is not designed um, to do that." But I get what you'd like. You'd like your son to work on this particular issue and then have a therapist available as a resource, but not as someone that he necessarily sees regularly. He said, "Yeah, that would be fine with me." His wife looks surprised. She said, I <laughs> thought you didn't like therapy. He said, well, I didn't like him being dependent on it. And I turned to her and I go, so you have a sense of therapy being something that is a resource that helps you grow and be autonomous. That you have somebody that's in your corner who is, who is there to dialysize problems and make you more effective with other people. And you go, the more of that, the better. And she goes, yeah. Yeah, that's how it works for me. And I go, well, yeah. And, and so for you, it makes you more autonomous to have a regular therapy. And and I turn to the husband and I, and I say, so for you, therapy is something that you use to get through a particular uh, uh, roadblock, for instance. And then when you feel self-sufficient, you keep going until there's a problem that requires. He says, yeah. And I go, well, I wonder which one of those two types your son is. And they both get a little bit of a puzzled expressive. You know, we don't really know. I go, well, how are we going to find out? And now all of a sudden we're coming, they're being aware of, their biases, and they're being aware of the, the validity of the other person's position, and they're beginning to focus on what they should focus on, is what's best for our son, That's what's most consistent with our own biases about therapy. Okay. And then that material that was in shadow, that they didn't know those biases exist, are now more visible. And the resistance to the other person, which is in shadow, now is more visible. And and then after that, I point out to them how they shifted from that competitive, not receiving influence contingency into that more cooperative, receiving influence. And I'll point out, you know, when you guys start getting mad like that, I'll, I'll bet you're in this competitive, not receiving influence thing. And if one of you said that, I think we're getting into the competitive, not receiving influence thing. There's a good chance the other one will go, maybe you're right. And then all of a sudden, you're cooperative, receiving influence. And couples that are cooperative and in receiving influence pretty much do great. Um, and then, of course, if you have a problem, I look at the guy, and you can't get through it, you get completely blocked. What do you do? And he goes, "See a therapist."
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a few interesting questions for me arose out of your description. One was, so the this question of receiving influence. Um, What do you do if you're, if you say are always trying to give influence and you're like, well, my partner doesn't want to hear what I have to, how I want to influence them around this particular topic or anything. Like my partner's always shutting down. Um, And then the, the partner might say, yeah, you're always, you're always criticizing me or you're always pressuring me or you're always you know, it seems like it's a recipe for some sort of like pursuer distancer kind of thing. So, so how, how does a couple shift into like positively receiving influence versus, okay, I'm just going to take the criticism or, and change or something like that.
1: The First of all, uh, and, and now I'm a practitioner. And so, uh, I do my best, as, as do you, as do all of us, uh, to write about healthy relationships, to write about uh, how to become more self-aware and so on. But ultimately, people come to me in distress like this couple you just described. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and so there are, are repetitive patterns that are immediately revealed by just that 30 seconds of exchange. For instance, the word always. Uh, and so that's always a, almost <laughs> almost always a clue that the person's nervous system feels threatened and has entered a defensive state. Now, defensive state is when our nervous system reads threat and instantiates a state where we have amplified or numbed emotions, distorted perspectives, diminished capacities for empathy and self-reflection, and destructive impulses. And if I constellate that state with you when we're in, in, a, in a relationship, particularly if you and I are intimate, your nervous system is going to feel threatened by that, by my negative story about you and my destructive impulse and, my, and me cutting you off from empathy and me cutting myself off from self-reflection. And you're going to go into a, a defensive state that actually is complementary to mine. These two complementary defensive states naturally accelerate with each other. And this goes back to our hunter-gatherer p- past. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of good evidence that two million years ago, human brains expanded specifically because human groups were so successful that they were a lot bigger. Um, human groups naturally max out at about 150. It's called the Dunbar number after Robin Dunbar who noticed this with humans, which is much larger than almost all primates. Now, in these groups, you had to have social structures. You had to have hierarchies. Yeah, you, they, they had to be organized. That you can't have anarchy. You need to have a social structure. How did people establish and maintain social structure? Well, when they felt safe, they did it collaboratively. They did it through shared intersubjectivity. But when they didn't, they did it through dominance display. People would go back and forth until one person collapsed into essentially being a victim and saying yes, and one person prevailed being an effective bully. And then the rest of the tribe would want to unconsciously align themselves with whoever the dominant person was because that's where the power was and that's where the abuse wasn't. Um, we all have those capacities to go into bully and victim in us. And when we get angry, those those ancient voices, those ancestral voices are activated and we start doing that with each other. Now, if we're unwa- unaware of it, we're going to do it with whatever we have available Now, we don't do it by hitting each other because we're all socialized. Most of us are socialized enough to not do that. But we'll do it with emotional violence. And now, if we can reestablish a hierarchy, one person can win, can dominate, and the other person can lose, can be a victim and just accommodate. But their inner subjectivity has been mauled by that. And it interferes with their intimacy. It interferes with their trust. It interferes with authenticity and transparency. And it limits intimacy. If, a, if we're not aware of that, we'll naturally do it. If we become aware of it, if I become aware of my tendency to become a bully or a victim, I'll notice it happening, and I'll have the emotional correlates to that. You know, being a bully is exciting. You know, you just feel this kind of hot thing of, I, I know that I'm right, <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how wrong you are. I, I had a client, a really sophisticated client. He said, he said um, uh, you enable Becky. He said, you're, you, you're wanting me to enable her. I go, really? So tell me about how I'm encouraging you to enable her. He said, sometimes you just have to point your finger and tell somebody that's enough. You can't do that. You know, he said it with an angry tone. He <laughs> stuck his finger out. I said, so for you, if you wanted to set a firm boundary, you can, it sounds like you believe you have to stick your finger out and use that tone. He said, yeah. I go, well, um, I disagree. I think you can set a firm boundary without sticking your finger out and using a whole hostile tone. In fact, also when you do that, you notice how you're really convinced that you're 100% right and she's 100% wrong. He says, well, I am right. And I go, really? <laughs> and I just laughed at him. And, you know, he had enough together to start laughing at himself at that moment. Yeah. That was me helping him understand how he had rationalized his bully with her. And he's sure, she would collapse and she would accommodate it, and she'd be cold for the next two days, which was miserable. Because what he really wanted was her warmth. And so the price that you pay for indulging your bully, I told him, is you sacrifice the warmth that you really want. And I told her the price that you pay by shutting up and not telling him, look, you know, I, I don't like your tone. I don't like your finger being pointed at me. I'd like you to use a kinder tone, please. The price you pay by not asking that or not trusting him enough to say that is you go into that victim place and then you resent him and you're passive aggressive for the next two days. Is that how you want to be? What you want to be is safe with him and loving him, right? Yeah, that's what I want, she says. And so now I'm getting them to be able to observe those shadow forces and then with their conscious self to regulate them towards more healthy. And you notice how obvious it is what's more healthy? It's obvious to set a boundary in a compassionate way is better than doing it in a hostile way. It's obvious to say could you use a kind tone is better than lapsing into sullen silence for 24 hours. Um, most of the time, the healthy option is that obvious.
0: Oh, it's hard for me to ignore the current political state of things when you say something like that, honestly. Oh, um, I've
1: been talking about that with people for the last two weeks.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. And just since you're, uh, when you're listening, listen, we're talking about two weeks post-election here, that, here in the States that we're, we're chatting. Um,
1: more than half the country is in shock, frightened, furious, horrified, resigned cynical, going through, going through the stages of grief. More than half of the country, more frightened than I've ever seen people before after an election.
0: It's yeah. yeah, and the other half, how do we bridge that gap? Because they're clearly not in shock. They're clearly not frightened out of their wits or thinking that this is the, the cataclysm that's about to happen in American politics. And it's, it's kind of odd to that to such uh, different worldviews are existing right now?
1: Well, the worldviews have always existed. I, I personally don't have a problem with that half of the country. Um, you know, the 70% uh, of, of the populace of the world, and probably close to 60, 60 to 70% of America, um, have worldviews where facts don't um, influence um, uh, pre-held opinions. You know, the facts don't matter. Now, that's just true for an egocentric worldview, and it's true for a conformist worldview. It's just our traditionalist worldview. Um, to rational worldviews pluralistic worldviews, facts, particularly rational worldviews pluralistic worldviews, facts matter more. Um, they don't matter 100% until you get to, to an integral worldview, but they matter a lot more. And so the consequences of that, if facts don't matter and if you have a traditionalist worldview where your, your pre-held beliefs are more important than other data, you're manipulatable. And this is what's happened in elections forever. You know, there's, this, there's, there's a, an alliance the last 30 or 40 years between the traditionalist and between the rationalist who want power and believe that the, the people who are most successful are the people that should be in charge. Um, and and they've learned that you can tell big lies um, and distorted stories to the traditionalists that, to a certain extent, cater to their beliefs. And after a while, they'll believe them. And after a while, the whole country will change. And this is what we've been seeing the last couple of years. This is the shadow shadow of our culture. And it's it's not just that half. It's everybody has been subject to that. I've been watching it. For instance, um, pretty much. All the news media normalized uh, using Hillary making a mistake with emails, for God's sake, with Donald Trump um, uh, doing criminal activities um, and being a mis- – all the things that he did. I won't, I won't make a list. That was a false equivalency. You can't take somebody who says, you know, I'm interested in data and facts and so on. On one hand, it takes someone who I'm interested in distortions and vile lies and find some place in the center. But that's exactly what the culture did. The culture created an equivalency. Now, this is, this is a neurobiological uh, tendency that people have, is, is attribution theory. And if you're not aware of it, then you're a manipulatable person. And so that's what happened. And the people that voted for him are the people that are going to suffer the most. And the people that are catastrophizing um, are right. Uh, you know, People will tell me, you know, things are going to be bad. And I go, yeah, they'll be worse than that. You know, we're in for, for a, a really bad four years. It's going to be very dangerous, and people will suffer, and people will die who wouldn't have suffered and died. And, you know, the only way out of it is, is to just take a stand for the evolution of consciousness. Um, uh, I, a fascinating statistic to me was, I don't know, about four or five years ago, the Republican platform, state platform in, in um, Texas, was we don't want to teach critical thinking to our middle schoolers because it'll cause them to question our traditional beliefs. That was on the Republican platform to not teach critical thinking. Um, And so, uh, luckily for the rest of us, um, in most school districts, in most states, uh, in probably all states, um, the the understanding is we're gonna teach critical thinking. We're gonna teach people to care about uh, facts. And so the more people that wake up to this, um, uh, the more informed decisions will be made. But in the, in the process, we see shadow happening. And now, with the current administration, th- this is not a self-reflective worldview. Uh, Trump doesn't have it, and none of the people that he selected. This is true for Bush also. And as a result, a lot of violence is going to come through and be rationalized by them, just as it was in the Bush administration. And, you know, it'll be a bad time and that'll be this country will be, ru- be ruled um, and be influenced by the shadow of these angry, uh, these angry old white men. Um, and I say that as uh, as an old white guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Who's maybe a little bit less angry.
1: I'm not angry, you know, I'm, I, I, anymore. I mean, I'm I, you know, one of the secrets of happiness, uh, and I forget who said this, but it's really true, is to expect everything to be exactly as it is. And so Obama epitomized that when he said he won't get over it. So now, okay, it'd be if a big earthquake happened, okay, a big earthquake happened, now we clean up. And so our work is is ahead of us, and, and those of us that uh, that have the ideas that you and I have and many others, we have a lot more work than we thought we'd have, but... You know, our job is still the same as it always has been. It's to help each other and to love each other and to serve the evolution of consciousness and and to help the world be a better place.
0: So along those lines, I'm gonna go back to something else that you mentioned um, a few minutes ago. And they were all in the same sentence which really caught my attention. And one was the desire for increasing authenticity. And and then on top of that, you also threw in and were wired to cheat. Uh-huh. And so now I'm thinking about the the justifications that often arise around cheating, where people were just being authentic. Well, I authentically felt attracted to that person, and and I'm wired to cheat, so I did. You know, like let's let's move <laughs> on. So next question. <laughs> <laughs> so how yeah how do you how do you reconcile um authenticity with something in our wiring like attraction to more than maybe the person we're being monogamous with
1: so now we're dealing with once again with one worldview and also with health um uh for instance if you're an egocentric person and you go well. I authentically wanted to have a, an affair, and so I went and had an affair. But then, when my husband found out about it, um, he is furious. He got sick. He divorced me. He he did all kinds of bad things to me. Um, and so, so she and I are talking. Say, and I go well. So what you want is you didn't want him to. She said I didn't want him to find out. And then when okay, so when he found out, you didn't want him. I didn't want him to get so upset and to to um, do the things he did. So, okay. So this is an egocentric person, say. I go, well, you know, we're wired to get jealous if our partner cheats on us. And so, you know, those neural circuits got got activated and now he has to deal with them and now you don't have the marriage that you had before. And that's, you don't like that. No, I don't. So I guess if you want to have the marriage you want with this guy, you need to not cheat on him. Okay, so that's purely an egocentric conversation. Mm -hmm. But... But we're beginning to get at why it's not a good idea for you to cheat, okay? I, now, say – now I can go through. Say you're a conformist person, you know, and, and now I feel really bad about myself because I cheated. Because it, it goes against – say I'm a Christian. It goes against uh, coveting another person's wife or husband, that kind of stuff. Well, I guess to feel uh, virtuous, you need to not cheat, um, uh, now, of course, if you now if I lose the option to cheat, and you know, what I want is is something else, more intimacy, for instance, or more erotic experimentation. Though those those are generally not the things that drive people into affairs. Seventy percent of people who have affairs say they're pretty satisfied with their marriage. What drives people into affairs is opportunity. It's evolution. Um, When we have the opportunity and there's a like-minded other who's interested in, and we begin to have a little bit of erotic polarity between my masculine and your feminine, we start talking ourselves into it. And the more we talk ourselves into it, the more other people disappear because that's the nature of sexuality and eroticism and that's the nature of an affair. So now we're beginning to talk about how I would talk to a rational person or a pluralistic person about this. Um, and so you were interested in, you know, in a way. So you were interested in going out with her, and she was hot. And she was interested in you, and you had this opportunity. You went for it. Yeah, yeah, I went for it. I was opportunity. And so your wife disappeared in a way, as a psychological being. The the potential damage to your marriage disappeared, didn't it? Yeah, I guess it did. I guess the potential damage to your children disappeared. That your children kind of disappeared. Yeah, I guess they did. Um. And so as we begin to explore how when you go into the the affair trance. You basically go into an egocentric state where you make everybody else disappear. I'm talking about the secret affair. Trans, not that, you know, the happy affair where a couple of single people find each other and just get hot and want to know each other forever. I mean, that's great. But this is a secret affair. Um, so people begin to see how they made other people disappear or they see how their husband made them disappear or their wife made them disappear. Um, and then we go into, well, so now what kind of relationship do you want? So if you want to have a deeper intimacy with your partner, you can't make them disappear and do stuff that's going to hurt them like that. Um, well, you know, our sex isn't that good. Sometimes people use that rationalization uh, for um, an affair. Well, I guess that you and your partner um, would really benefit by, by having better sex. And as it turns out, we're living in an age where there are a bazillion ways of having better sex. There are the get, be, be more intimate people that leads to sex if you're wired to having better sex when you're more intimate. There's the be able to be more psychologically separate people and then we're more, a little bit more strange to each other. And then we create episodes, you know, little windows where we can be more erotically charged. Okay, we can do that. We have the, more, the tantric orientation where we, we get away from the arousal and orgasm cycle into maintaining arousal. Human beings are the only species that do that. And indeed, uh, you know, other species come really fast. Every other mammal is a premature ejaculator. Human <laughs> beings, human beings mostly are not. And the amount of foreplay in the United States went from an average of seven minutes in uh, 1940 to an average of 14 minutes in 2000. So the evolution of consciousness doubled the amount of foreplay in this country over seven, over 60 years. Okay, so... so we had, this is where people can, with their conscious awareness, begin to, to meet their instinctual drives. And drives are a big deal. You don't deny them. Um, you know, if you're not having any sex with your partner, this, you know, a couple will come in and, and he went out and had an affair. And you're furious with him. You go, okay. So you don't want him to have affairs. So are you willing to create a, a sexual relationship with him? Now say her answer is no. Then, you know, you bring him in and you go, okay. So she wants to have a companion at marriage. She doesn't want to have sex, but she wants to stay married. And are you willing to do that? And he goes, yes or no. Um, And sometimes people do say yes. Uh, Most often they say no, particularly if they're under uh, 60. Um, And then that leads to a conflict that is a necessary conflict. And out of that comes decisions that they make. And, you know, the intimate relationship, the marriage relationship is the most demanding and conditional love there is, and it has ever been, really. And if you want to have a good one, you have to make sacrifices. And those sacrifices are you have to do what it takes to have to be moving towards helping your partner be fulfilled and having your, and your partner, allowing your partner to help you feel fulfilled emotionally, spiritually, erotically, relationally, and parentally. Yeah. And if you're not, go on. And if you're not willing to do that, you going to have problems.
0: Yeah. I love the quote that you chose at the beginning of the chapter nine on marital shadow in shadow light. And I'm just going to read it, um, briefly. It's, it's short enough. Um, this is from W.H. Ouden. Like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will. Any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. And what I love about that is how it, of course, reveals that there's, there's will, there's effort, there are these conscious acts of creation and choice that are so important to having an infinitely more interesting long-term relationship. If you're, if you're not willing to exercise that, then perhaps fleeting, passionate romance is only, go, is going to be the thing that, that seems like it shines brightly in your life. Um, and I'm curious because you talk about in the, in the book, the, uh, the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. And how important that is for our development as individuals. And I'm curious about what happens when you bring that the hero and the heroine's journey, um, whether it's a hero and a heroine coming together or two heroes or two heroines. What happens when you bring those journeys together into a long-term monogamous relationship? How can, is there a way that people can use that archetypal um, metaphor to help understand where they are and maybe what they most need in that moment in their relationship?
1: Absolutely. First of all, we're always uh, influenced by our our archetypal forces, whether we know it or not. Uh, the stories of our lives, our autobiographical narratives are what drive our lives, and we're the heroes in those in our autobiographical narratives, and also the villains sometimes. And there are images and forms that light us up and that shut us down, and they're different for different people, and these are the archetypes that attract us and repel us. And... um there's there's the larger archetypes say the masculine and the feminine and then the more granular archetypes say the difference between the, the 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 Hera the goddess of the hearth and Athena the huntress goddess um and so this this always always influences uh, a relationship always and so most people love this language they love understanding the archetypal forces that move them and experiencing themselves as on their own hero or heroine's journey and experiencing their partner as a companion in some fashion. Now, this gets very complicated. If, if you have a sense of a deep purpose, a sacred purpose, as many of us do, uh, your partner, particularly if you're a masculine person, um, your partner will not want you to put her above that sacred purpose. She'll find you'll be diminished in her eyes. You know, with uh, it's, it's, it's Harrison Ford comes home and says, honey, um, they called me again. They want me to go save the world. And she goes, no, no, don't go save the world. You, you know, stay with, we, we got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and a three-year-old and we got to pay the rent and everything. So don't get. let's fucking somebody else go save the world. You stay home. And, 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 and he goes, no, I got to go save. No, I want you to stay home. I don't want you to go save the world. He goes, okay, I'll stay home. I'll tell him to find somebody else and I won't save the world. <sighs> she says initially, I'm so relieved. But then, you know, the next week she goes, jeez, he could have gone and saved the world instead. He's out changing, you know, mowing the a while. He got diminished in her eyes. <laughs> you, know, he, you know, even though she was pissed about it, he needed. it was his mission. He had to go save the world. So you have to be true to, to whatever is sacred to you, and your partner needs to respect that. In my, uh, my relationship course, Loving Com- Completely, I organized it around five uh, questions called the five stars. And the fifth one. Briefly, they are the questions are, is there erotic polarity between me and this person? Um, Does this person take care of their psychological and physical health? If I was in relationship and in conflict with this person, would they be able or willing to get back to love? Would this person show up as a parent or a family member? And the fifth one, does this person have something that's uh, sacred to them, larger to them than themselves? And are they respectful and even admiring of the stuff that's sacred to me? Um, I found that these five dimensions are crucial to intimacy. And, and I think the people who strive to be those five stars and choose people, um, to, that they feel is yes or probably on those dimensions tend to do better. And it's a good way of organizing yourself in a relationship. So the epic journey archetype is an ideal way of doing that. And, and people will instinctively understand what the call is. I was called, uh, to do something and you're called in all kinds of different ways uh bill hanlon says uh, you can be you can be pissed dist, blister blessed you can be called because you're just so fucking pissed off about something you go do something like the people who are going to go now work for democrats you can be you can be um, dissed someone can say oh you, you'll never you know you'll never make it in higher education uh, this happened to a woman And the woman who said, you'll never make it in higher education, she got a letter uh, after this woman got her bachelor's with honors. And then she got another letter after the woman got her master's degree with honors. And then she got a signed copy of the person's dissertation after she got her Ph.D. And then she got a signed copy of the person's first book that she wrote after she got her Ph.D. She got dissed and man, you know, she found purpose. Or someone says, God, you'd be a great architect, you'd be a great therapist, you, you, you know, you'd be a wonderful fireman, you're a communitarian person, go, yeah, that'd be great. Or, or that's blessed, or blissed. You find something that lights you up so much. Um, Neruda has a, a, a beautiful poem about how poetry came to him. Uh, I actually have a copy, of will pull up for a second, I'll read you a little bit. Of-
0: See, none of this is planned. We are we're spontaneously grabbing poetry books off the shelves. Yes, we it's, are. <laughs> this is Pavel, live.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, Pablo Neruda, um, and he was he was he was blissed. And it was at that age poetry arrived in search of me. I don't know. I don't know where. I don't know where it came from from winter or a river. I don't know how or when. No, they were not voices. They were not words nor silence, but from a street I was summoned, from the branches of night, abruptly from the others, among violent fires, or returning alone. There I was without a face, and it touched me. And I, infinitesimal being, drunk with the great starry void, likeness, image of mystery, felt myself a pure part of the abyss. I wheeled with the stars. My heart broke loose on the wind. That's when you're blissed. You follow that and it leads you on your epic journey. And if you have a partner a part that, is, that is deepening intimacy, intimacy with you, you'll feel that partner joining you and supporting you on that quest. Your partner will be a source of magical aid for you. It will become one of your allies. And you want to be a source of magical aid and an ally for your partner, too, on, on his or her epic journey. And so this language helps people and this, these conceptions help people understand themselves. You know, Ken, Ken Wilbur and I had, we were talking about my book. We argued a little bit about this part of it, about archetypes. Um, because, you know, there's been an awful lot of damage done because of um, mythic structures in the world. But, you know, um, if someone is purely an expression of themselves, they become a mythic expression. And if you took eight fully realized human beings, they would have eight completely different forms because all that full realization is coming through a human vehicle and a human vessel and we're all different. And when it comes out, it comes out as a personal archetype. And these archetypes inform us and they help us as we're true to them. They help make us more coherent. And as we're aware of them, we can summon them from our unconscious and support them. And it's not just the positive ones. It's the negative ones. You know, the dark ones, you know, Kali the killer goddess, um, the bully, um, the, the, the damaging person. Um, you know, one thing that martial arts uh, led me unexpectedly to was understanding why I always hated violence. Um, martial arts, contrary to popular belief, does not make you a more violent person or more prone to violence. Martial artists are less prone to violence and understand violence, take violence more seriously. Um, my ch- I'm a martial artist. My children were raised, my daughter and my son, and they never hit each other, ever. Not because I told them not to, it's because that was trivializing something that was huge and important and necessary and dangerous. And both of them learned you know, how to do damage to other people to protect themselves. And both of them always took it seriously and never, ever struck another person in, in anger. Um, uh, because it was violence was too big a deal. You only do it in service of compassion once in a million times, and you do it at great risk to yourself emotionally and physically, and to great risk to other people too. Okay, there's archetypes for this that arise. Um, you know, the the saints, uh, um, um, the, the Krishna uh, and Arjuna, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the dialectics that arise out of this. Yeah. What, tech- go
0: on. what process do you suggest for people who I, I'm I'm intrigued by this idea of summoning the archetypes, and I can imagine how I would do it, but I'm curious, like how what's a good strategic way for someone to identify, like, all right, this I'm going to call upon this particular archetype. How do you diagnose the need, and then how do you go about the summoning part?
1: Um, well, first of all don't have to diagnose the need we all need to do it <laughs> it's a human need
0: Every i guess few, more like how would i know which archetype was the one i'd want to call upon
1: yes so uh um what i do with people here's what i did with the, the last time i had this conversation so i asked this guy he's a very very hated guy um and he was just overcome with rage at uh, an ivy league school that had fucked him over So I said, well, tell me, uh, tell me your favorite movies, your two favorite movies. Yeah, I asked him about any archetypes he was interested in. He said, well, Tin Cup and the the Ring Trilogy. I said, so who are the heroes? He said, well, Kevin Costner was the hero in Tin Cup. And um, Frodo, of course, there were many heroes, but, you know, Frodo was the guy. I said, all right. So what characterized them? And so... The guy in Tim Cup was somebody who had lost his connection with the other world. He was desperate to find his his game. He had lost it, and tried all kinds of bullshit ways of doing it. And finally, went deep into his heart and deep into an intimate relationship, and he was transformed. He found he found his game, and, and as a result, found himself. Okay, that was an archetype that appealed to him, and we began to work with that. And, of course, in the Ring Trilogy, there's a classic scene in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, where they're all sitting around and arguing about the ring because it's driving everybody crazy about who's going to take it to Mount Doom. And Frodo stands up and said, um, I'll take it, though I do not know the way. Um, that he stepped up and decided to do what frightened him the most because it served the highest good. And this lit this guy up just like it lights me up when I remember it. And so these archetypal forms then became standards that I can refer to. So are you are you following the way, the way that Frodo would? Um, Are you going deep into your heart the way the guy Kevin Costner did in Tin Cup? And if you're not, you're not being true to your own archetypal forms. And when we're not true to our own archetypal forms, when we're not true to whatever our position is on our epic journey, we suffer and our relationships suffer.
0: Mm, so, and then once you've identified that, um, and maybe that identification is enough. And I'm wondering also if you have a suggestion around really embodying the, um, so it's not just like an intellectual, like, oh yeah, that calls to me and that lights me up. But now how do I translate that into how I move in the world?
1: You know, uh, light has a companion journal workbook called the shadow light journal workbook where I, I, it's much shorter. Where right? I took all the exercises from the the book, there's a lot of them, and I put them I put them together as a series of practices. When do you identify whatever the archetype is for you, and for for men, quite often it's the warrior, the warrior moving into man of wisdom. Um, that's a, that's a more of a universal theme that, that transcends other themes for the masculine. Um, then. You go into that – part. you find that part of yourself. Okay, so you find that – what does your inner warrior say about this? My inner warrior says I want to do this, but but I'm scared. All right. So now we have an ordeal that you've just created for yourself. You have something that you want to do, but you have fear that's stopping you. And so if you face that fear, move into doing that thing, whatever that thing is that you want. Whether it's applying, you know, asking for a raise, whether it's learning how to play, how to do, uh, how to surf, whether it's, um, asking your wife to, to, to explore sex more with you, whatever that scary thing is, whatever that ordeal is, if you take that ordeal on and do your best with it, you'll discover a little bit of your warrior yourself and strengthen your warrior yourself in that ordeal. And that leads you a little bit deeper. And I'll have people have conversations with their warrior self or their man-of-wisdom self or uh, the other archetypes that can arise. Uh, I'll have them – they'll find them in dreams. Some of my archetypal figures appeared for me in dreams. Um, in the last chapter of my book, there's a meditation that basically goes through uh, a gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual states in nine chakras. Well, each one of those states involves figures that can arise from different people. I, I I like that practice. It helps me in my work and my spiritual practice. And each one of those has, has corollaries in the various mythologies of the world um, that might light somebody up. Um, you know, uh, the, the archetype of Krishna lights me up. I don't know why. It just does more than others. And so um, I've surrendered to that. Uh, Just as in another chakra, the heart chakra, the big mind, big heart, you know, divine love uh, appears in in, uh, uh, non-dual fourth heart chakra. And, you know, there's forms that embody uh, big heart um, to me. And so in my clients, there's forms that embody big heart to them. And and so I encourage them to develop relationships with those, interior relationships. Now, these these forms always were there in shadow. They are always part of information uh, processing. But as you begin to develop relationships with them, you strengthen them. And this is how you grow your shadow. And if you have a relationship with somebody else who's helping you with that, that inner subjectivity both deepens your intimacy and accelerates the development of your shadow.
0: So I'm wondering if you would mind, because I'm remembering from our first conversation, how you, you actually led a lovely kind of guided process. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could lead us. And if you're driving your car, you might want to, I don't know, hit pause or something and listen to this or pull over to the side of the road or something. Um, I'm wondering if you'd mind leading us in a little, um, brief um, meditation to um, to observe shadow and with that um, acceptance and caring intent and to feel a little bit of that power of what it's like to transmute something that's maybe troubling us or n- nagging at us and transmute that into something more um, constructive
1: I would love to do that and um, so let's do it So, again, if you're, uh, I encourage you to not be driving when you're doing this, to be sitting in a comfortable spot. And what we'll we'll do is we'll start with an attunement exercise. And then we will progress into um, uh, an archetype exercise. So, let's start with the attunement. So, attunement is Uh, Being aware um, of breath, sensation, emotion, thought, judgment, and desire um, with loving acceptance and caring intent. And the way you do it is very, very simple. Um, Be aware of your breath going in and out of your body and feel it go in and out of your abdomen. And just breathing slowly in and out of your abdomen with awareness calms you down. So just be aware of your breath going in and out of your body, out of your abdomen, acceptance and caring intent. And as you're aware of breath, be aware of sensation in your body. What are you feeling? How do your feet feel on the floor and your butt in the seat? How are you feeling in your legs and your genitals? your abdomen and your solar plexus and your chest and your neck and your arms, your face and your head. What sensations do you have? Be aware of your sensations with acceptance and carrying intent. And now, as you're aware of breath and sensation, be aware of what emotion you're feeling. Be curious, be happy, be sad, interested, um, distressed, anxious. Just feel how emotion flickers in and out of your body. Sensation and emotion joined. The sensation given a name is emotion. You feel where in your body that emotion is with acceptance and caring intent. And now be aware of your thoughts. You how your thoughts flicker in and out of awareness. How they come and they go. Be aware of your thoughts with acceptance and caring intent. And as you're aware of sensation, emotion, thought, and breath with acceptance and caring intent, be aware of your judgments right now, both positive and negative. About me, about yourself, about people around you. Be aware of your judgments with acceptance and carrying intent. Both your positive ones, well, I'm a good person, or your negative ones. I'm a jerk. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm doing badly. Just be aware of your judgments with acceptance and carrying intent. And as you're aware of breath, sensation, Emotion, thought, and judgment with acceptance and caring intent. Be aware of desire. What do you want right now? Something to drink, stand up, sit down, go to the bathroom. Um, what do you want? Take a note. Um, what do you want? Be aware of your desire with acceptance and caring intent and as you're aware of all this think of someone you love somewhere wherever they are and ask yourself how well would he or she is sensing feeling thinking judging wanting at this moment and be aware of it with acceptance and caring intent be aware of them curious about, where are they on these dimensions? And feel how this connects you, with you and with and, and him or her. Now, out of this connection, there's a form. There's a form of your inner subjectivity. There's a form of your relationship. You as a couple, you as the, these two people in relationship. Could be a lover, could be a friend, could be a family member. Just feel that container, that form of you too. And where have you found that form before that feels and tastes like this form? Where have you seen it in a movie or read it in a book? Be aware of those people, that form. What was it about them that attracted your attention? That either repelled you or excited you? Be aware of how that archetypal form feeds into the form of you and this other person in your inner subjectivity. What's beautiful about this form? What's inspiring about it? What can you do? What can you ask for? What can you offer? that will move you and your partner into a pure and more beautiful expression of this form. And this is you finding your inner subjective archetypes. and finding the form of relationship that excites you and guides you. And let's just sit with the tuning to ourselves, the tuning to this other person, and attuning to this form that we create and where we found it before, where we found it symbolized in some other archetypal form for just a moment. Is there anything that you're observing now that you just didn't observe before? Anything that you knowing now that you didn't know before? Well, this is you encountering shadow. This is you going deeper into your adaptive unconscious. This is you going deeper into your shadow self. This is illumination at the edge of darkness. How are you feeling as you do this, Neil?
0: I'm feeling really centered, uh, really connected to my partner chloe who's just in the other room but um it's uh and and i'm seeing images of our connection that they're just really clear and magical and and help help me connect with what's um what's special and fantastic about about that connection yeah
1: what's sacred about it Mm. and you see how demanding it is see what you have to give to maintain it and you give it gladly don't you absolutely yeah and so does she I imagine
0: Yeah. yeah
1: and so that's that's precious that's priceless and so that's that's the standard when we work with couples we want them to want to move into more and more moments of this and less moments of of conflict, as we talked about earlier, and to have that sense of this deepening love um, Uh that that grows not just the relationship, but grows our individual and collective shadow and spills over into other people. Because when you and Chloe walk into a room, that room isn't diminished by you walking in. That room is expanded and enlivened. You become value-added people individually in your relationship becomes a value added relationship. Um, and this is what we all want. Um, in Buddhism, from an individual standpoint, this is what the 10th Oscar picture was. So this is how it happens in relationship. And it's a beautiful thing. And it inspires all of us in the field. I know it inspires you it inspires me.
0: Hmm. hmm. Wow, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, Keith Witt, you have been so generous again with your time and your knowledge and your wisdom. It's such a pleasure to have you here on Relationship Alive. I want to remind everyone that um, we have a detailed show guide for this episode. You can get that at neilsatin.com slash shadow, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Keith's latest book just came out called Shadow Light is available on his website on Amazon um, he also has the course that he mentioned called Loving Completely which is available through Integral Life and his website which we will link to of course in the show notes is Um Keith do I have time for one more quick question? Of course. Okay, And I, I have to ask this question because one of one of my dearest friends is, I think, one of your most raving fans. And she was curious about how a couple can use shadow together to cultivate Eros, to cultivate that erotic energy in a way that is, is safe and nurturing for, for them as a couple. And we touched on that a little bit earlier. And I'm just wondering if out of this zone of post post-guiding the meditation, if there's something that that that's question sparks in you?
1: It, we have a cultural dissociation around eroticism in this in the West. And maybe it's everywhere. Maybe it's a it's a human thing in that uh, human societies tend to control people's um sexual choices. And so we have to overcome that to be able to open to each other erotically, to keep alive, to keep, it, to keep that interface happening, which requires courage because people get activated, get distressed. Now, one exercise that I recommend to people is that they create a lust map. You get a big sheet of paper, and in, the, in this, you put a three inch circle in the center, you put my lust map in that get a bunch of colored pens or pencils. And then you begin to write things that either turn you on or turn you off. And you put wavy lines from the center to those things. And sometimes you can connect them. Um, really specific things, um, like like, uh, uh, Manny Newman's song, You Can Leave Your Hat On. You know, Take off that dress, <laughs> yes, 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 but you can leave your hat on. Okay, so... <laughs> If it's a lever hat on, it's her hat on. If it's if – it's, he, he smiles at me during sex. I like that. I, or She talks during sex. I don't like that. Uh, um, um, uh, I like it. He brings me flowers. I like that and takes me out to dinner. You know, she gets dressed in a, in a beautiful dress, and I like um, – she puts on her, uh, her jeans. I don't like it. Right, everything that, you, that lights you up – and it doesn't have to be about your partner. It can be about anybody, about anything. It can be activities and so on. And you can, you can illuminate it. You can draw little pictures. You can glue, glue things on it. You just make it a masterpiece of your lust map. Anything that lights you up a little bit or turns you off. Okay, Lights you up, turns you off. Lights you up, turns you off. So you and your partner just both do it. And then you show them to each other and you explain it. And then... You know, As you do that, you just see how connected you stay. And if you have a big fight you can't get out of, go find a therapist who knows what he's doing and talk about it, you know, with him or her. But uh, uh, otherwise, just and then as you do that, you go, well, so is there any any room for, for me to help you have a better time or for you to help me have a better time during lovemaking out of all this stuff that we just did? And there will be stuff. There will be something. Just talking about it tends to have powerful effects. Sometimes it turns people on. Sometimes it pisses them off. If you get turned on, great. Go have sex and have fun. <laughs> if, it pisses, if it pisses you off, what pisses me off about it? Why does it piss me off that you have fantasies about being with two women at once? You know, Because you're monogamous. So what if you have fantasies? Uh, does that mean you want to be with two women at once? And you know, then you begin to get into the whole area fantasy is not reality. Most people do not want to act out their fantasies, really. And most people who try to uh, – Get disappointed. Uh, There's a there's a interface between fantasy and reality, but it's not uh, linear. (laughs) And so you do this exercise with your partner. And where is there room for us to have some more fun and to feel more fulfilled? And I have a personal standard. You know, the standard is if some random researcher dropped out of the sky and ask you like 20 times in the next month, do you feel fulfilled in your love affair with your partner? And does your partner feel fulfilled with you? About 80% of the time, if you say yes to both questions, you're probably in pretty great shape as a lover with your partner. And if it's less than 80% of the time, you'd say, yeah, I feel fulfilled mostly, and my partner feels fulfilled mostly. Then talk about it with your partner and say, how can we move towards that mark? How can we feel more fulfilled with each other? And let's do it. uh, and it 's a good idea uh, and the older you get, the more important it gets and the longer you 've been together, the more important it gets and, and The harder it is, the more important it gets
0: right and and i it brings me back to what we were talking about earlier that it it takes that that awareness and that intention and and that it is totally something that you can cultivate, and you have to be aware that you're going to have to cultivate it. Most likely there are things you can do to cultivate it. And some people just do them naturally, but most people they're going to have to put some attention on them in order to make that happen.
1: Yeah. The worst answer to a partner if they say, I'd like you to change something is to say, that's just the way I am. Okay.
0: Mm.
1: Never say that. Hey, this is a, this is a hint to everybody out there in relationship, which is almost everybody. Never. Even if you think it, don't say that, okay? <laughs> that's, don't say it. Remember this moment and don't say it. <laughs> say, okay, I'll work on it. Yeah, I can, I can work on that. I can get better at that. Anything other than that's just the way that I am. And now, and all the, you notice as I say this, what we're looking at is discovering aspects of ourselves and aspects of our partner that we didn't know before. We're, we're looking for stuff that was once unconscious but now is conscious. And sometimes it's stuff that we have that's repressed, which was the classic definition of shadow. And sometimes it's stuff that was never repressed. It's just something that we never, ever looked at. But that's also shadow because it was something that was unknown. And then when we send our attention to it, it becomes known. And at that interface, if we go to that interface between known and unknown and we go with curiosity and acceptance – um, not with judgment, critical judgment, curiosity and acceptance, and also discernment about what's healthy and unhealthy. Staying at that interface in me about constructive and destructive shadow with me and with my partner, what's, what seems constructive and destructive with her, and staying at that interface with acceptance and caring attention, wanting to reach for her for healthiness, that accelerates the development of both of our shadow selves, and it accelerates our relationship. And it's not as easy as it sounds. I have a whole section of that in the book about everybody says er, describes things as so fucking easy. Well, it's not. None of this is
0: easy. <laughs> and
1: so it's my job to make everything sound easy, but it's not. It's hard. It requires effort and courage. But, you know, when you put effort and courage out, you discover yourself having courage. And and focused intent and action in service of principle driven by resolve is a human superpower. And if, if, if I have focused intent... Um, Um, and action in service of the principle of loving my partner better. And I'm resolved to do that. I'm going to create better love with my partner. And if we both do it, we're going to create better love. We're going to keep discovering more and more about ourselves in the world. And again, that's illumination at the edge of darkness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let us, let us all foster the, the cultivation of that superpower together in our relationships. And and when you do or when you when you catch glimpses of it, please drop me a line here at the podcast and let me know, because I want to hear how it how it was manifest. You know, was it x-ray vision? Was it a hot, passionate <laughs> night? <laughs> I want to know. So, uh, Keith, thank you so much for being here with us today. And um, it's always such a such a treat. and. I think, uh, I think we've got a bunch of... We're going to have to make some Relationship Alive superhero capes that we send out to lucky <laughs> listeners.
1: <laughs> Good idea. Wonderful <laughs> idea.
0: <laughs> yes, with the burning heart on there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Keith. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion p-a-s-s-i-o-n to the number 33444 for more information finally do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on relationship alive either for a future or past guest let me know and i'll see what i can do take care and see you next time